Welcome to Dylan Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Sessler. Today is episode 14, I hope. I didn't check that. Um, where I have an incredible de- guest lined up for you. Uh, but before we get to our guest, don't forget to purchase your copy of Defy the Darkness on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And don't forget to join my inspirational text platform. Go ahead and just text hi to 1608-336-4480. My next guest is, I'm excited for this, is a 38-year-old retired veteran from the Wisconsin National Guard. He's got two tours, uh, two combat tours, 20 years in. He spent eight years as an instructor at Fort McCoy, uh, teaching instructor courses as well as OCS, uh, officer candidate school for those who aren't military. Uh, He also has seven years of service as a corrections officer and sergeant. Uh, My guest has built his own coaching practice around helping veterans come home, which is awesome. I love that. With a growth, he's got a group coaching service he calls the Fire Team, uh, along with one-on-one coaching. My next guest is Loison Cast. Loison, how are you doing today? I am fantastic, and I'm excited to be here. It's going to be fun, man. I, you know, I'm trying to get more and more veterans, um, not only to see my content, but also to connect with me and the people that I'm connecting with. And like right now, I'm starting to connect with more and more creators, coaches. Uh, veterans that are that are stepping out and, and doing something about all of the the struggles that veterans have um, and I I love what you're doing why don't you tell me tell me anything you want to anything you want to tell me tell me your story tell me what you do um, tell me why you're doing it tell me everything oh man that's 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 a lot um, It took me a little while actually to figure out what it was I wanted to do with this because when my transformation happened, it was at a time in my life where I was still working for the Department of Corrections and I uh, went through Dave Ramsey's Financial Coach Master Training. That's where my coaching profession or my coaching career actually started, but I had no idea where I wanted to go with it. And... um, I built this little box like in my mind that said, okay, I can't help people unless they want help with their money. But I wasn't getting coached yet either at that point. Like I had not made the investment in committing to just figuring out how I could be better. And so looking back on it, I realized that I'd, I'd managed to work myself into a place or paint myself into a corner where any given set of circumstances, I was responding with one of two options. I was either a victim because I had somebody over my head with, with more authority. Wow. I can talk more authority than I had telling me to do something that I didn't think was right. Thought there was a better way for, or didn't believe in. And through military conditioning, if nothing else, so that, well, you just got to swallow it. Like no matter how bad it tastes, no matter how much you want to spit it out, you got to chew it and chew it and chew it until it's digestible. So felt like a victim. Now this translated into if I did have authority over somebody and they weren't performing to my expectations, there's so much wrong with what I'm saying right now, but uh, they weren't performing to my expectations. My response was anger. Mm -hmm. And as, as my 
coaching progressed, as I started working with my coach, I started to see that this was layer after layer after layer after layer of habitual thinking. And the reason that I respond with anger or responded with anger, and those were literally my only two options was because I wasn't angry. I was scared to death. And that was just my learned response to it. And I found out that if I raged hard enough, one of two things would happen. I would either gain compliance or people would just like move away from me so they didn't have to deal. Right. And it worked. It worked. Kind of. Yeah. And so I resonate with people that are in that space. And the idea of, of coming home, just it still just punches me in the chest because I realized that I came back home in 08, I think. And my life kind of fell apart at that point. You know, I, I went to the VA just essentially to, to get myself checked on or checked, checked out. I didn't feel crazy. I didn't feel like I had all this stuff going on, but I wanted to make sure. And the first um, psychologist I spoke with at the VA, just, it, it, was, it was an awful experience. And may I kept I, trying to go back. Go, may go I, ahead. May I ask why? Um... I may have misjudged the situation, but as memory serves, he, he hit on me. Like I'm literally sitting in his office and he hit on me and it, I, I sort of froze and then I sat through it because I felt like I had to sit through it because remember, this is all conditioning. Right. Like I, I didn't know that I could just get up and walk out at that point. Yeah. And I never really went back. And after that, I started trying to self-medicate. Um, I was still with my ex-wife at the time, and I destroyed our finances because I worked in a bar as a bouncer. And when I wasn't working, I was just plugging 20s into the nickel machines, plugging 20s into the nickel machines. I was drinking heavily. I was, I was not quite blind drunk, but definitely shouldn't have been operating a vehicle. Although I, I probably did on, on a fair number of occasions, I was experimenting with recreational drugs. I remember at one point, my, my ex-wife had to take my 40 cal out of my hand to keep me from using it. And I, I, I don't know why I let her. I, I couldn't tell you some, something saved me there, but that's probably about as low as, as I think I've ever gone. Um, we were in the, we were legally separated, I think at that point. And I remember living in the house cause I couldn't afford to move out on my own and having her bring at least two different dudes home a week and having to listen to that pretty much night after night. And uh, I finally left. I don't, I don't know what made me leave, but it was basically the, the clothes on my back and my motorcycle and a couple of tools. I, I probably left behind several thousand dollars worth of property that we, that we jointly own, but I wanted to get out of the situation more than I wanted to take my dignity with me. Yeah. So made it through that got into the department of corrections. I went to school to be a cop, but that 
I had a DUI in 05. And if I'm going to be 100% honest here at the time, I thought it was because of that, but it wasn't. It was because I wasn't performing as well as I could on the fitness exams and, and the interviews. And so I ended up interviewing for the Department of Corrections because bills don't pay themselves and was really excited when they, when they, you know, jumped at the opportunity to, to hire me. At least that's how it felt. Yeah. Once I've been working for the DOC for a couple of years, I realized they needed somebody with a pulse to put in that uniform. But right. at the time it felt pretty good. So I've, even, even with that cloudiness, I'm going to call it, like I, I didn't have clarity of any kind then because, because remember I'm living either as a victim or as an angry asshole. Like those are, those are literally, literally my two options. Right. Um, started the academy, met some people who were just like me. One of them actually is, is, uh, is my best friend. I'm just starting to outgrow him, unfortunately. And that's a, that's a whole nother story, but um, started uh, work once I completed the academy at allegedly anyway the the toughest prison in the state of wisconsin it was wapon correctional institution i ended up working as a, a seg officer right away so it's like the the prison equivalent of the infantry the light infantry yeah <clears throat> and i had fun because i was engaged i was active i was learning unfortunately the vast majority of the people that had been working there for a while didn't quite treat these people like people and i'm afraid i fell into that habit initially when I was learning because I figured they knew better than I did as I started to to gain some traction I started to see that the way they were getting treated wasn't necessarily the way I would treat them if I didn't feel like I were obliged to do that and then I realized somehow that I didn't have to treat them that way just because other people did so that was that was actually a kind of a highlight and so I just went to work in a different way. And I, I took the ribbing, you know, thug hugger and, and shit like that. My coworkers would say, and I didn't, didn't really, it, it didn't really affect me like it had or it would have before. But then I started to actually get good at it. And I started exploring other things like, well, okay, what are, what are my other opportunities within this? And, and, I think there was part of my natural creativity that was essentially pushing to get out and I couldn't, couldn't let it. And uh, so I don't know that I was aware of it. Like looking back, I can see, but in the moment, I don't know if I was aware of the fact that that was part of what was causing a lot of my struggle and the, the mind drama that I had going on. And still, I'm, I'm still on the mindset, you know, I'm, I'm either a victim or I'm an angry asshole. I had no other options. So I, I changed institutions a couple of different times to see if maybe a change of environment, because, you know, changing the, the circumstances makes all the difference. I said with heavy sarcasm. Right got nothing to do with it, but I didn't know that at the time. So I started moving around a little bit, kind of found a little bit of a niche at Dodge Correctional, stayed there for a little while, but the face of corrections is changing and I wasn't prepared for it. And yeah, the, the years I spent at, at DCI, I think I was there for three years. I don't, I don't look back on them fondly, maybe because 
I'm in such close proximity to the time when I started to transform. So I'm, I'm still maybe a little bit ashamed of the way I behaved. But I also know that I was literally doing the best I could from one moment to the next, given what looked real to me. Right. And now I'm at a place where I understand that I'm, I'm home. I'm, I'm here now. I'm in the moment. I get to create from this place of there isn't really a yesterday and there isn't really a tomorrow unless I start thinking about it. Yeah. And if I stay engaged with creating, I don't, I don't have a bad day. I mean, circumstances are going to be what they are. They're pretty much neutral. They, they don't have a charge unless I give them one. I can't have a feeling about something unless I have a thought about it. And um, I don't know how good a job I did of telling you who I am, but uh, that's, that's right. Seems like a logical place to stop. It feels like a feels like a good. Well, good because I got questions. Oh shit! So, number one, where'd you deploy and when? <laughs> oh yeah, I guess I didn't go back far enough. Um, the first one was in oh uh, two, oh two, oh three, oh three. I went to Kuwait as a, a vertical engineer. I don't remember the alphanumeric. I don't remember the the MOS for it. Um, was 51 Bravo. Now I think it's 21 whiskey, but, uh, went over there for about a year. I spent like four months or five months, some, some ridiculous amount of time up at Fort McCoy getting ready to deploy. And then we went to Kuwait for a few months and I built things like loading docks in the desert for semis. No idea why I learned to drive literally every piece of equipment the army has and get licensed on it. Of course the licensure lapsed, but I came home with this feeling that I didn't become a a soldier to do that. So I reclassed the infantry, um, stayed with my folks for a little while, did a semester or two of uh, police science, I think, over at Southwestern Wisconsin Technical College in, uh, in Fenimore. And then I moved to the Appleton area when I met my, my ex-wife. And then I deployed to Iraq in 2007 with E Troop of the 105th Cav and we ran combat logistics patrols. And I think that might have been where I started swirling because I didn't see a whole lot of, uh, of actual action, like what most people would describe as, oh, that's, that's, that all veterans go through that, you know, bloody body parts and people dying in your arms and getting into firefights. I didn't, I didn't see any of that. But there was a part of me that felt like I should have. Yeah. There's this, there's this underlying sense, given the, the work that I've done, there's this underlying sense that up until, you know, six months ago, I was never enough. Like I always had to do more. Like it all, everything always had to mean more. Like I had to be special or more special as I compared myself to other people. I know that took a hard right turn, but it felt like the thing to say. No, I mean, it's, it's such a, I think it's such a common thing in the infantry in general, but I think, I think more than just the infantry, just, I think there's a lot of, a lot of soldiers and veterans out there that if they don't go through combat, especially infantry, it's why I think it's such a topic for, for infantry is that if we don't see combat, what, what did we do? What did we offer? That's our job. Like they, we're supposed to be in the shit 
you know, giving it to giving it to the enemy so that the enemy doesn't can't give it to others, you know, and and it's such a I think it's such a silent point for most leadership and most like discussions around combat and war is that we we talk about PTSD and the fact that you go to war, you see combat, you see death, you see bodies, you see you kill someone. Um, and that's such a major point for discussion. But at the same time, what about the guys who are guilty for not doing enough? And I don't, you know, I don't know if it's PTSD, but it's certainly a, a transition point that is not discussed, that's not offered support for, you know, I've never seen anybody talk about like survivor's guilt um, of, of soldiers that weren't necessarily in combat, but lost friends, saw, um, saw others, other units lose soldiers. You know, this, this idea that, you know, as your job as infantry, you know, if you, if you don't do it to the combat level, you, f you feel irrelevant. You feel like you're not worthy. You know, I, I, I certainly think that there's, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of regret. Um, that's can be illogical and irrational, but at the same time, it's, if it's there, it's fucking valid. And if more people and more people talk about it, it's certainly valid because if everybody feels it, there's, there's something that we need to talk about. Um, so no, I think, I think it's a great segue to, to talk about and, and really understand because who is talking about that? Yeah. You know, that, uh, that leads us into a great opportunity to share part of my story with you and it's, it's worth exploring. So I told you I didn't do much of anything. You know, we, we, I, I remember a controlled detonation on the road, felt it in my chest. It was a big bomb. I remember that. But one of the things that I, I created, right. And, and this is, this is a little hard for me because it brings up this idea of violation of integrity and stolen valor, but I'm going to go ahead and tell the story because there's at least one more guy out there dealing with some shit like this. And it's right in line with what we're talking about anyway. So um, I came home and it wasn't too long, maybe a year or two after before people were asking me about my combat experience. And I was telling them about a, an incident where we got involved in a complex attack. There was an IED initially that went off right next to my truck. Fortunately, it was pointed the other way. And so it didn't do a whole lot of damage. And then I, I tell people that I vividly remember or told people that I vividly remembered seeing the vapor trail of an RPG going between my truck and the truck in front of me. And then there was small arms fire and we, you know, handled, handled the situation and got rolling again after we did a damage assessment. And I told that story for years, Dylan, years. And then suddenly it, it wasn't too long. Maybe I was two or three sessions in with my coach. I started to question the validity of it. And it was the scariest place I think I ever had to go because I was, I was raised to prize integrity. Like we didn't have shit growing up in terms of money or, or status or, or possessions or anything like that. So all I had was my word and we didn't have TV either. So I read a lot of Louis L'Amour and that just sort of shored up the entire idea. And then I get into the army and they just, they're, they're pounding the same thing. So integrity was huge. Might, might have been the only thing I lived for at some point. And just to, to be faced with 
questioning that kind of rocked me. But then I, I, I went, I went back. I'm like, okay, I remember some of the guys that I used to ride with. So I started asking them about it. And here's the interesting part. They said, no, man, I don't remember that. Are you sure you were with us? Maybe you were on another clip. Maybe you were with a different platoon that day because they would, you know, move people around periodically and, and just, just to shake things up. But it just felt like a lie and it felt awful. But when I realized why I had convinced myself, it made a lot more sense. That service had to mean something. It had to mean something more. So the fact that I, first of all, I wasn't conscripted or drafted. I enlisted in 2001. I was in um, reception for basic training when the towers came down. I'm already, by virtue of my service alone, representative of less than, what is it, 0.6% or something of the entire population of the U.S., but that wasn't enough. And I was in the guard, mm. you know, and, and I was an engineer, and that wasn't enough, so I had to join the infantry. And then I deployed, and I went overseas, and I, I was actually in a combat zone. Like, it was, I, I got all kinds of ribbons and shit on my, my dress blues that say I was in a war zone. But in my mind, it wasn't enough. My war was not catastrophic enough for me. Yeah. And against everything, everything, all of my integrity, I created this lie. And I, I can, you know, apparently I can tell a lie really convincingly. Because it wasn't a lie until I realized it was a lie. Yeah. So I just, I, I guess I have to wonder how many other guys are out there. And, and that's their their war story. That's, I got, I got a chance to work with a guy recently. I'm not going to mention his name for kind of confidentiality, but after our coaching program was over, he told me that I was literally the only thing that like, I was his last ditch effort. His dad had committed suicide a couple of years back and he'd seriously considered it. I didn't know that that never came out in our coaching, but that's, I think that's the beauty of coaching is I'll, I'll acknowledge the past because it's what helps the present make sense. But apart from that, I don't give a shit about it because it's today and forward. Life only moves one way. Yeah. Forward. That's a really important concept as a coach is that if, if you walk into a coaching session and you judge anything, I think you're making a mistake. You know, it's, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm in a different, kind of niche than you. I work with mm -hmm. trauma survivors and I mostly focus on, I mostly have women come to me. Mm -hmm. um, but the, one of the things that I walk into in my first session is I don't give a shit if you lie or tell me the truth. I'm not here to judge. I'm not, I'm not the judge of the truth here. I'm, I'm here to validate your feelings and help you understand where you're going. If you lie to me, that's for you, mm -hmm. right? you at some point will start to understand that that lie is going to break you down. It's not going to affect me. I'm not here trying to determine whether your trauma is this big or this big. That's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is to understand you. And at some point, usually if you tell me a lie, I'll know. And I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to understand part of the reason why you probably told me that is because at some point, you needed to, yep. you needed to use that tactic to survive your life. And far too often that goes all the way back to childhood, right? That's, oh, not yeah. just, 
that's just not, that's not just war. It's not just domestic violence. So often I find that parents have taught kids to be mm-hmm. by, by sheer strictness um, or, or superior domination. Um, kids have to lie to work around their parents and, and live within that environment. And it just becomes second nature to, to be that person to their parents, you know, and who am I to judge that? I like, I have, I have no, I have no right to judge that person, especially based on my choices. I lied for 19 years, right? Like I was, I was every single day of my life for 19 years. I thought about suicide because my dad committed suicide. How can I judge a person for lying when I did it myself? Right. You want to talk about actors? I was one of them, right? I, like I could have won an Emmy award because when I told my friends and my family, they were like, we had no fucking clue, no clue, you know? And I, I think it's a really profound understanding for you to, to, for you to see that, like that you don't give a shit, right? Because that's so powerful as a coach when you walk in and you meet someone that's like, I don't give a shit, right? You're going to do you, I'm going to do me. And this is your space to own. And it disarms people so much that they're like, let's, let's do this, you know, because it might be the first time in their life that they actually can. So I think that's pretty cool. It's, it's huge. And, and it's the truth. And that's the cool part of it. Like, are you familiar at all with Byron Katie? Uh, No. Okay. So she had an enlightenment experience. I want to say it was back in the late eighties or early nineties. And she came back with something that she created called the work. And the essence of it is judge your neighbor, write it down, ask four questions and turn it around. I don't remember all four questions, but the first, the literally the first question. So you're, you're making a judgment about another person. And the, the essence of the work is that she helps you see that judgments are projections Mm. fundamentally so the first question literally the first question she asks is is it true and it's not in a judgmental way it's we're looking for the truth and so i i guess maybe i've kind of adopted just that overall attitude like i am here to help you find the truth i'm not here to create the truth nor am i here to tell you what the truth should be because that would be mine it wouldn't be yours But as I listen to you, tell me your story. I know in the back of my mind that it's a story, whether it be a war story or a life story or the story of you story, idea, um, self-perception, degree of self-awareness. There's, there's a, a plethora of terms that we could use for it. But at the end of the day, it's how you see yourself and how you see your world. And I'm interested in that. Like I'm, I'm actually interested in it. Like, well, that's fun. But there's also this small wheel on the back of my mind that's that's spinning. Like, what else is possible? Mm-hmm. Especially if I see the person that I'm talking to suffering from something. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's that must be what looks real to them. What else is possible? What else is possible? What could also be true? What could also be true? And generally it's the it's the opposite end of the spectrum from where they are. And that's what makes the work fun is initially they're like, I don't see how that's possible. And I'm like, I know that's what makes it awesome. Are you willing to sit with me until we get there? You're the first person in a very long time that I feel like has actually heard me. So yes. Yeah. Cool. Let's do it. 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Now I'm I'm seeing her four questions, and I wanna I wanna read them. Question one again: Is it true? Question two: Can you absolutely know it's true? Question three: How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Uh, question four: Who would you be without that thought? So it's really it's it's quite an interesting line of questioning. Um, and to go back to kind of what you were talking about is people, you know, when, when you talk about stories, right. And, and knowing that people are telling you a story, the interesting thing that I find about people is that when they tell you their story specifically, they're very specific about how they tell their story. And when you start looking at, looking at that over time, you start to see how their perspective is actually transitioning. Um, and it's one of the things that I notice because I'm a very observant person. Um, after my dad died, it was a, it was a moment where I was like, I, I shut up and I listened, right? It was, I didn't have a mouth at that point. It was, I had two ears that were the size of Dumbo's and I'm, and I'm listening to everything that's happening around me, um, you know, for, for many different reasons, but it was a, it was a focal point of my life. So I started to pay attention to people. And when you start to really pay attention to people, you start to, you start to hear patterns in their word use. Um, you start to hear patterns in how they actually use those words, like whether it's actually the definitional use or not. Um, and it starts to get real interesting when, uh, when you start addressing the definitions and the connotations that they're placing upon words, because most people don't even understand that they're not using words correctly and they don't understand that they're not using the right words for what they've been through, which is really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, uh, my coach, my initial coach, she will, she will probably always be the woman that I, that I call my coach, even if we're not working together anymore. She's, she's my first, you know, and she is, she's done God knows how much counseling and God knows how much therapy. She's a 33 years sober addict. Wow. And uh, she's so good at that. I mean, and I, the vast majority of our conversations are, are well, we'll call them sessions because that's what they were. She wasn't there to play. Within five minutes, usually less, but within five minutes, she just sniped one of the words that I used and that ended up being the majority of the session. Yeah. Is that what you meant? Oh yeah, absolutely. Is it because she, I, I mean, I, I got this massive vocabulary. I grew up without TV. I read a, a gazillion. That's not a real number. I don't think books. I still read like every day. So she knows that I'm articulate and that's not fair because she yeah. just, I'm pretty sure that you, use that out of context or did you and then that's where the conversation goes and that's those were some powerful sessions yep oh yeah i do that all the time i, I usually do that in my first sessions like my free consultations like people will come in and you know we'll start talking and they'll tell their story and i we usually end up talking about one specific thing and it's usually a word that they used and or how they used it you know or the body language and how they use that that specific word um you know and it 
it usually gets to that point. And I've, you know, one of my, one of my, ver one of my very first clients, um, you know, she, she told me in our first paid session, she's like, out of 26 years of therapy, this was the, this was the only time ever, anyone's ever gotten to this point because we started to define the word love and she had never truly understood the definition of love and how it actually impacted her and what it meant to actually give love and also receive love because her family had always struggled with giving love and she had always given but never received so it's you know it's a very toxic situation and she never had the ability to step outside of it and really look at it from a from a different perspective you know and it's 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 things like that that a lot of people don't don't have the ability to do you know in their in their lifetime um with with someone that's observant enough to really focus on that whether it's whether they don't give themselves the opportunity or you know i don't i don't know if therapists really get taught about that because oftentimes the people that come to me are people that have been to therapy and have had a terrible experience and they come to me and they're like you're you're it you're the I'll never go to therapy again. Like you're it, you're my last resort kind of thing, you know, and, or they, they find my content and they're like, you get me and I've never even spoken to you. Right. Like they, it, it's just an interesting situation to, to see that that is not more of a focus for, for like the, the helping, um, the helping professions, I should say. I think you're right. Um, and I think, and, and that's not necessarily true of, of all of them, I don't think. Um, there are some, there are some disciplines, that I don't even want to call them disciplines, they're more concepts than anything else. Have you ever heard of the three principles? No. The work of, the work of Sidney Banks that's being brought into the, the contemporary world by people like Jamie Smart and Michael Neal. It's the idea that uh, our experience comes from three places, essentially, but they're just different versions of the same place it's mind thought and consciousness mm -hmm. mind is mind is the idea of universal mind that there's something slightly bigger than all of us as humans out there thought is not what we think it is <laughs> I, that's a, a clever clever chopping in terms of words and then consciousness is just awareness but those three things collectively to make up our experience Oh, crap. I'm trying to remember what I brought that up now. Oh, <clears throat> there are some um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and counselors that kind of work in that. And those are people that are going to be more likely to not, I don't want to say this. I think that the vast majority of, of counselors and therapists work according to a prescribed template. I agree. And there's not a single human being out there, in my personal opinion, that a template should be applied to. Not when we're talking about this. Right. You know, may maybe there's a standard that they're required to meet for their job. I mean, obviously, you and I are familiar with that. The Army's full of standards. Yep. But not when we're talking about, you know, how we describe ourselves, how we define ourselves, how we're going to motivate ourselves to change because we don't like the results that we're getting, there's nothing cookie cutter about that. Right. 
So I, I guess maybe that's my take on it. And I haven't been through a lot of therapy or counseling, so I don't, I don't want to dip too far into this, but my limited experience with it was exactly that. I mean, it's, it's, you see it on television from time to time. Why are we talking about my childhood? It's like our first session, doc. Why am I laying on the couch talking about my childhood? Well, there's value in talking about your childhood because as we previously discussed, there's a lot of good information there. But I barely know this doc's name is Bill. We don't have a relationship. Yeah. I don't trust you enough to take me there. I don't want to go there. There's a reason that I haven't gone there in, what am I, 38 years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I'm kind of the same way. I don't have a, I don't have a ton of experience with, uh, with therapy. I've probably been twice in my life and it was when I was a kid and I wasn't <laughs> talking anyway. So, um, the, the reality is, is that I, I speak only through the experiences of what people tell me. And I probably hear only about the bad people. Um, but I know there's good, I know there's good therapists out there and good psychologists out there. I follow a lot of them on TikTok and Instagram and, um, but it is, it is interesting that I get people that come to me because of therapy. Um, and it's just, it, it, it's not good. Right. I'd rather, I'd honestly be happy if I didn't have a job because of, because that would mean that people would be getting the right kind of help. Right. I don't, I don't want to do the work that I do for the rest of my life because I'd rather solve the problem and come out of it with, you know, a, a mental health community and a mental health um, profession that knows how to do the work for all people, not just the people that, you know, have, have minimal problems or are able to work through their problems better or, you know, find the right therapist, you know, like I want people, I want all people to have access to the, to the good therapy, right. That can, that can solve their problems, but you know, it's, it's the world. And I don't think that's ever going to happen. You stated earlier that we have a little bit different niches and i'm going to agree to disagree if that's okay because i think at its core the work that you and i both do is help people understand where their experience comes from certainly you know it's it's a mind-made prison yeah and a lot of times it's it's only the entire prison is only built on one or two bricks and you help people see that i help sure. people see that you just, you just talk to veterans. I usually don't. So that's when I say niche, that's all I'm talking about. Is I, oh, okay. I talk to a different, different, different demographic of people. Well, it's so it's very similar problems, extremely similar. When mm -hmm. I do, when I do speak to veterans, I mean, it, nothing changes, right? right. The, the only thing that changes is the demographic. Like mm -hmm. I'm usually talking to a man um, versus a woman. And that's it, right? The problems are so remarkably similar that it's, you know, one of the things I talk about on TikTok is, you know, PTSD is not a monopoly, is not monopolized on the military. It's not monopolized by war. Like there, I, I have patients, you know, or I shouldn't call them patients, clients that they've been in a war zone their entire life and they've been in, they've never left America, you know, like it's, and, and I've worked with veterans that have been in a war zone before they ever joined the military, you know, like you, 
your home life can become a war zone and PTSD and trauma and all of these and how people interact with these with children is is remarkably like bad. You know, it's it, like the, the parenting that I hear about is incredibly poor. It's incredibly detrimental to children. It's de- incredibly detrimental to, you know, the future of like being a rational and, and uh, you know, kind, like self-kind or self-compassionate human being. Like the, the environment that, that these people grow up in it's no wonder why they have problems is yeah. that there's, there's no, they have no support at home. They're silenced or um, they're, they're literally told that they don't have problems, even though they may have sexual trauma or like, you know, incredibly, uh, incredibly bad abuse. Like it, it's, it's remarkable. Sounds like your clients and my clients share some similar characteristics and then in, or in that, even though the vast majority of their cups are empty, like they're bone dry and they've been empty for a while, they still try to pour them out into other people. Yeah, absolutely. That never stops. They're so selfless. Yep. But they don't have that, that boundary essentially. Yep. Because some, somehow or other they got conditioned to that's where I'm going to find what I'm looking for is just giving it everything I got, giving everything I have to other people. Uh, just hoping that that comes back. Yep. You know, and that's a, a learned trait, you know, certainly kindness is, is, is something that I think is, you know, nature it's, it's natured within us, but it's very much determined by the, the people that we have to interact with. And if, if you are put into a situation where, you know, let's, let's say you have a narcissistic parent, you're going to become incredibly kind because you have to, right? There's a, there's a, a survival need in a, in a sense. And it's interesting to see the people that, that have that versus the people that don't and, and seeing where, you know, if you really want to start understanding people, just start paying attention to how they, how they talk about the people that they've been exposed to, you know, and even the, even the people that have harmed them their entire life, the, these, these, they talk kindly of them because there's a, there's a survival need to actually do so. Yeah. And then when the reality is, is that you're in a session with me and there's no harm, there's no, there's no, you know, there's, there's no boundaries here. Like you're, you're absolutely safe here. But yet there's still a, a need to talk kindly of a person that has harmed you your entire life. And it's like, I want you to, I want you to show me the teeth and get fucking angry for a second, right? Like this, this, is, this is something that needs to be discussed and opened up about and understand that you've been harmed by these people and that there's feelings in there, right? The body has this this intricate system, like memory is not just up in your head and in your brain. Memory is within your whole body, right? That's, it's called procedural memory. And when you, when you really step into what has been built throughout your life, habit is not just a, you know, an emotional synapse or a, a, you know, a thought. It's a physical, emotional, um, energetic feeling that can come out and it turns on your amygdala. 
you know, versus right. neocortex. So it's, uh, it's remarkable to see that stuff and it's a challenge. Yeah, I, I may be, um, I may be fortunate. Um, just the awareness of the fact that my angry response was visceral yeah. was enough to make me start to change the habit. The, the, the awareness was the first step. I swear that's, that's the first step in virtually any 12 step, isn't it? It's just knowing you have a problem or words to that effect. I would imagine. So I've, I've and, never actually studied the 12 steps, so I don't know. Okay. I, I want to say that's true, and I'm sure somebody will call me out on it if they hear this, and I was horribly wrong, but I don't, I don't mind learning. Let me, let me pull it up. Oh, Lord. So you're going to call me out on it. Bless you, sir. Step number one, and this is, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we, admittedly, we admitted we were power. Oh, man. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Okay. So it's... I, I think I can get away with that one. That's pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty I'll, close. I'll take it. Um, I'm sorry. I think I sidetracked this. I did want to go back to um, the idea of, of niching. Um, I don't exclusively, or I don't find myself exclusively working with veterans. And uh, I actually support my wife's business. Uh, she's a boudoir photographer here in Fond du Lac. And she's actually built a community um, on Facebook. This group has over a thousand members and that's where the vast majority of her business comes from. And she and I actually um, recently sat down and had a conversation that sounded an awful lot like I don't like the way these ladies are talking about themselves yeah and so I decided that I was going to offer sessions to these folks if they were really struggling with something and being a life coach it's whatever life is throwing at you right now whether it be interpersonal relationships or personal finance or or any of the things so I think I work the most effectively with veterans but that's it doesn't necessarily it's i'm not gonna not give water to someone who's dying of thirst yep if that makes any kind of sense at all well yeah it's i mean i think about it as marketing right like i mm -hmm. i'm a practical person right um i can help anybody but the yes. reality is is that you know when i when i stepped on tiktok because tiktok is my platform it's where i have a like 438,000 followers now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I stepped on thinking I was going to talk to veterans, right? So I just started making content. I started making content about what helped me overcome the things that I overcame. Um, and lo and behold, I think at the time it was mostly women on, on TikTok. And I started being followed by 75 to 85% females. Mm -hmm. um, and that grew, right? I grew you know, exponentially in the first few months to get to 30, 50, 100,000 followers. And then within nine months, I had, had 300,000 followers. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I, I transitioned from being this, you know, this potential veteran, you know, mm -hmm. life coach or, or mental health coach is really what mm -hmm. I call myself now right. um, to really being anything, right? Like I, I can talk to anybody, I can help anybody, um, but I don't, I don't, I don't build that message out to everybody. I just okay. let whoever needs me find me, right? That's, that's where I, 
Um, that's where I really focus my, my business side of things is that I, I have a niche, but eventually that niche will, will kind of cease to, to matter because everyone will, it, you know, my message will start to permeate where, where it will. And I, I speak to the majority of the people that I speak to, and that's women, typically women with trauma, um, a lot of, a lot of divorced women, um, usually between the ages of 25 and 50, you know, it's, it's kind of all over the place, but trauma is, is literally the connecting factor to everyone. Right. Yeah. I, I, I talk to veterans, um, on occasion and even for the military, cause I'm still in the military. Um, I do suicide, suicide discussions. You know, I, I go out and, and have speaking engagements with, with companies and I talk about my own suicide. So I speak to everybody, you know, I, and the only reason I niche down to, to women in general, or I focus my advertising on women or anything like uh -huh. it's, it's literally just because it those found you. they, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I know, I know my customers now and most of my customers are women and that's, yep. there's no problem with that. It's going to be hard, you know, and, and I think I know why it's because men are hard. And men are hard to talk to men are hard to reach men are hard to open up. I know I was there, right? Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to fucking talk to anybody. I didn't want to hear anybody's ideas or thoughts. Like I, at one point I was the most toxic thing in my life, right? My silence was toxic and you know, it's not really a, a trait that's really discussed enough about toxic, right? Like my toxicity was the demise of all of my relationships up until yeah. my marriage you know it yeah. was I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't create boundaries i wouldn't talk about like hey i don't like that i wouldn't say it right because that would lead into a conversation that usually went to what's wrong with you dylan and it's how am i going to explain that without explaining i want to die right like so my my silence was like it was the thing that stopped all conversations. I kind of, I kind of say like, if, if you don't talk within your relationship, you're not building your relationship. Yeah. And that was me, you know, like, so I know like men are hard, men are very difficult. And I know, I'm sure if that comes out, which I'll probably cut, um, and, and put it on TikTok or something like that, that might speak to men who knows, but it's, it like your, your most toxic trait trait for men is probably silence. Silence. You know, and I, I wish, I wish more people would kind of talk about it and, and expose it because it just doesn't have, it doesn't have the traction and so many men, right? Like 79% of suicides are men. Yep. Like wonder why. Cause they don't talk to anyone cause they're culturally conditioned not to talk to anyone yep. that is still so pervasive. It shocks me. But again, I'm, I'm on the other side of it. You know, you, you talk about sabotaging relationships. I, I realized that the vast majority of mine, including my former spouse, uh, ended up not working out essentially because I found myself gravitating toward people who needed to heal. Yep. And I loved that. I, I, so that's always been a part of me, but it's like once they were healed and once they were whole, one of two things happened. Either I got bored and found a way to sabotage it, or they suddenly saw me for who I was 
you know, they, they basically got on the other side of their own insecurity and started to see how insecure I was yep. and they left yep. and I can't blame them for that. But I, I couldn't even begin to understand that until I started, I, let, me, let me back up, until I stopped looking outside myself for the answers to the questions I was asking and what I wanted to find. Right. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to be able to see, like, I think, I think that kind of mentality is so, so common, right? Like these, these healing type people. Um, you know, what you, you can call them empaths, you can call them healers, you can call them whatever you want. But these, these people that want to heal other people are so often people that need to be healed themselves. And it's, and it becomes, you know, the healing process for them to other people is a distraction. Um, or it's, it becomes a, a habit, you know, it, it becomes something that it's the only way that they appreciate life anymore. And, you know, like I, I look at it very differently from where I was. Cause I'm, I'm that kind of person. Like I'm a fixer, you know, that's just who I am. Um, but at the same time, I see the weakness in that. Right. I see, I recognize that if, if that is my whole purpose, what happens when I can't help someone? I, I know what I do when I can't do what I want to do. Right. And, and what happens is bad stuff, yeah. right? It, it becomes, it, it goes back to the toxicity, right? The silence and all of that stuff. So I don't, I don't lock in my value on a task anymore of trying to heal people. It's not my fucking job, right? My, the only job that I have in my life is, is to heal myself, is to make the best version of myself and be happy with that. I can't fix other people. I can't heal other people. I can't save other people, right? If I was a medic and I could physically take your, your aorta and put it back together, I could, I could save you. But when we're talking mental health, I can't save you because there's a, there's a, a cognitive environment that I will never understand, right? Like we, we have somewhere between, and we don't know, somewhere between 6,000 and like 35,000 thoughts or decisions a day. And when you, when you get to the bottom of that, I can't even understand my 6,000 to 35,000 decisions in a day. How the fuck am I supposed to, how, how fuck am I supposed to understand yours? Some yeah. job, right? Some job, right? So my purpose is me. And if I have extra, I give it to you. And with that, all I am to another person is a guide. I can be a support structure. I can be a guide. But if you lean on me, eventually I'll fall too. Uh -huh. And so I don't put myself in a position to be, to be torn down by people that don't know how to focus on themselves. That's why I wrote my books. That's why I built my podcast. That's why I built yeah. my content. Is because I don't want you to call me all the time and be like, hey, Dylan, I need your help right now. Uh -huh. that's, that's not my job, right? I put all of this out there to say, you need to learn how to figure it out yourself. You have to, because at some point there's going to be nobody around you. Oh man. Right. Nobody's going to come, come save you. No one's coming to save you. That's the, that's literally what was running through my mind. Yeah. Nobody's going to be there. There's, there's, I promise you at some point in your life and the people listening right now, nobody is going to be there one day. 
and you are going to have to figure it out. You are going to have to get down on your hands and knees because you're fucking blind and find the next step. And you're going to have to, you're going to have to crawl. And you know, that's, I can give you all the resources I can. I can give you my book. I can give you my podcast and give you my content. I can share other people's stories like license, but it's up to you to take this stuff and input it into what you've been through. It's, it's your job to rewrite your book, your story, your narrative, whatever you want to call it and edit that fucking thing and fix yourself because you've got a, you've got six to 35,000 decisions every day for the last 35, 40, 50 years that you have to process, not me, nobody else, not your therapist, not your mom, not your dad, not your psychologist, not your life coach, not Loison, not me. It's got to be you. We're just, we're just here to help. And that's, that's what, that's what really taught me how to help people is that it's, I teach people self-responsibility, you know, that I want you to really take control of this process. You want to heal? You've got to learn. It's going to suck. And I've got to want it. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. That's it. That's life. Yeah. That's, that's one of the better pieces of content I put out not too long ago. I, I, I told my tiny little community that the second best day of my life was when I realized that no one was coming to save me. And the best day of my life was knowing that I didn't need them to. Yeah. I think that's probably a work in progress. I think we all have days where we actually start believing our shitty thoughts. Oh yeah. It happens, it happens to everyone, you know. But that's kind of what saves me when I get into to spaces like that is I don't have to believe what I'm thinking. Just, just because there's a crappy thought in my head doesn't mean I have to adopt it, take it home, feed it, put it through school. None of that shit. Yeah. It doesn't belong to me just because it's there. And if I can come up with a good enough reason to let it go, it will let go of me. That's more Byron Katie, by the way. Well, I love, I love how, how Jordan Peterson talks about thinking, right? Like thinking is the concept that you create a scenario in your head and you allow it to kill itself. Ooh. Right? Like you, I like that. You know, if you're going to go make macaroni and cheese and you leave the fork, like in your mind, you leave the fork in the bowl and then you put the bowl in the microwave and you're like, boom, I just blew up my microwave. That thought just killed itself because that's a bad ending. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and what your thoughts are, are really this, this continuous notion of killing off a bad idea until you get to a point where it you either have an idea that actually kills you or you continue right like and and it becomes pervasive when when you are put into an environment that your thoughts are required to kill you in a sense because your environment sucks and I, you know, that's, I, I really love how, how Jordan explains that. And it's, I think it's genius. I'll have to dig into that. That's a, that's a little darker than most of the stuff I, uh, I run typically or study typically, but it sounds worthwhile. I, I love Jordan Peterson. He's, I think he's more, well, sometimes I think he's more real than I am. 
Mm. I'm a very, I'm a very, I wouldn't say dark realist, but I'm, I'm a very realistic person. Like I'd call you raw. Yeah. If I were, if I were to describe you in one (laughs) word, I think I, and I think it's, it's effective. Yeah. Because you, you're, I I don't believe you're concerned about anything but the truth. Yeah. And you want people to do it as expeditiously as possible. You want them to find it as expeditiously as possible because I think you understand the value of time. And I think the reason that you understand the value of time is because you can look back on your life and see how much of it you spent in a, a place that wasn't this place. Yeah. Did I, am I anywhere close to the? You are spot on. And that's, it's interesting because normally people don't come on my podcast and tell me who I am. I'm sorry. Which is, no, I love it. I, this is a change of pace and that's good. It's, it's, it's interesting to see how other people see me because I'm so, I'm always the one looking at other people and kind of telling them who they are. So it's, it's, it's always interesting to have another coach on because we always kind of do this. It's like, yep. this is, this is you, this is me. Wow. Right. <laughs> yeah. I No, no problem with that. Okay. It's. It, it, it occurred to me. That's how most of my actual sessions go. If something occurs, like it, it just sort of comes out. I, the person that I am today, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and share it. So maybe a year ago, I would have looked at who I am today and said, what kind of hippy dippy foo foo shit is that? <laughs> what in the actual, that ain't real. And I'm looking at me back then, looking at me, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. So when someone even sort of implies that, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I know, I know. Just, uh, just it, this, this is, there's a reason. <laughs> I don't really defend my position, but it's just like, yep, I was you once. And I would have thought I was a wingnut too. Yeah. But I found the truth of what I'm living in, and that's what I want to share with you. Yeah, you know, I think I I, I relate to that for sure. You know, and I, but but mine's a little bit different because I always knew I was <clears throat> going to be this person for some reason. I think around ten years old, one around ten years old, somewhere between ten and twelve, I knew I was going to write my book. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I just knew I was going to write my story in some way. And it's, which still baffles me in some ways, because I was like, how, how could I have that perspective back then, knowing that every single day of my life, I thought about killing myself. So it's, it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting dichotomy of, of how you're, I shouldn't say dichotomy, duality of looking at how I think and how I've thought over my life. Like you're, you're so right about like, I'm raw. I'm raw because I've never been raw before. I never allowed myself to be raw. I would be honest with people, but I would never be honest and raw with myself. And that was the, you know, that was the downfall for me is that I needed to be raw. And, you know, one of the things that I, if, if I want to inspire people, that's why I step out and I talk about suicide and mental health and all of these things. Like I do, like I, you know, that one of the scariest moments in my life, and I've been to, I've been deployed to Afghanistan twice. One of the scariest moments of my life was walking into a, a, a conversation, I shouldn't say a, a discussion 
with 50 infantrymen about mental health and suicide. That scared the shit out of me, right? To, to open up and talk about my own suicide, my dad's suicide, how it all happened and where it brought me to talk about this story with, with guys that I knew were, were hard, hard guys, right? Hard people. I've, I've worked with them before. These are my colleagues and my peers and my subordinates and some. So that was the scariest moment in my life was, you know, this was about a year ago, opening up about that and expressing myself to that. I had been on TikTok and I had talked about it for, you know, you know, six to nine months by that point. And now I'm finally sitting there talking about this and in front of these people. And it was like a moment where I was like, I need to stop judging myself for this. You know, that was, that was really a moment of clarity for me of like, why, who gives a fuck? You know, like I, it, I kind of, I've kind of moved into the Gary V mindset and I just like look at things and I'm like, who gives a fuck? Like, it doesn't matter. Like if, if, if private Smith looks at me and he's like, I don't agree with that. Or Sergeant first class, you know, Geronimo looks at me. He's like, the fuck is wrong with you? I'm like, I'm talking to you. You're the fucking problem. You know, I have no, like, I have respect for you as a human being, but also I'm, I'm directly counteracting your negativity. So I need to be here and I need to share my story because people like you are the exact problem. And from that point on, like the, the hate I would get on TikTok, the hate I would get on, you know, any social media or even stepping into a, a situation and having to deal with someone that didn't agree with me. I didn't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck, right? Like I want people to disagree because then I learn why they don't disagree. You use it. Yeah, absolutely. It's fuel. Well, it's what it is. It's not just fuel though. I need to learn because we've, we've created this society that is so extreme, right? And, okay. and, and we can talk about like the Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, it doesn't matter. There's everything's extreme. Mm-hmm. And if I can't learn from these people that are on one extreme while I'm on the other, because I'm not, I'm not necessarily on the other. I'm just, I'm here. And I talk about things on one extreme and the, this extreme, but if I can't, learn how to talk to these people, I'm only going to talk to these people. Yeah. And, and marketing would say, then just talk to these people because that's business, yes. but that doesn't solve any fucking problems. Does it? Exactly. So I look at it one. Yes. I, I look at it as fuel, but also I look at it as I have an opportunity, an opportunity. Here. and I have an opportunity to learn how to talk to people that I've historically not been able to talk to. And, nice. and people that are the problem, because I look at, you know, I, I look at a lot of people that are that are empaths and people that have relationships with narcissists. Mm. Well, I, I can talk to empaths and fix them all day. But if I don't learn how to talk to narcissists, that then they're just going to keep building problems for me. And that's that's not solving my problems. Like I yeah. said, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I would love it if my job dried up because we didn't have any narcissists. We just had good people, you know? So that's, that's kind of how I look at it. And it's, uh, it's different. Yeah, definitely. But, it's, but I like it. Yeah. I don't, I don't have judgment of myself anymore. You know, even, 
you know, today I'm like reading my book and I'm like, I don't like my book, but I'm like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's, it, it, I haven't even read it and I know it's going to inspire people. If it's, if it's your story, like the whole story, like details that you would, you, you might not remember in an ordinary conversation, but because you took the time and put that thing together as a project, you included those subtle nuances and shit. Yes. That's going to inspire people. That's going to make a change in somebody's life. If, if, if nothing else, it's going to make them take a second look and maybe that's enough. Yep. What I'm discovering is people have to be committed to change. Oh yeah. And they have to, on some level, accept, understand first and then accept that it's going to be difficult at times. And if I'm the one helping you do it, I'm going to make it as painless as possible. Right. I feel like that's kind of my job and I'm, I'm kind of good at it. But at the end of the day, it's like you said, if I create dependency on me, if, if I let you lean on me, eventually we'll both fall over, I believe is what you said. And I loved it. Yep. It's so true. And I'm not sure where I was going with that. So we're, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, that's, that's reality. You know, I love, I love, I love to live in reality, you know, and I, the only reason I look at my book and I say, I don't like it is because I wish I would have put more in, but that's the, that's the perfectionist in me. Cause I'll always want to do more. That's just, that's my nature of, I want to do more, you know, and that's, that's a habit built up from, you know, realistically my dad, you know, what my dad, that choice made me always want to do more. And there's times where I look at my book and I'm like, you could have done better. And I also look at myself and I say, you're right. That's why I'm writing another one. And it's, it's that continual conversation of, yes, there's going to be self-judgment there, but I also have a counter counterpoint. I always build a counterpoint and it's, it's a conversation, right? You can't live without self-judgment. You know, it's, it's just not real because we live in a society that's built to create self-judgment. Mm-hmm. That's what advertising really does. Like you need this, like, Oh, I do, but I can't afford it. Why the fuck can't you afford it? You know, it's like this, it's, it's meant to be there in a sense. And, and escaping that is almost impossible at this point. So there's always going to be some self-judgment. So you have to create the counterpoint to it. You have to create a voice within yourself that's powerful enough to say no. And that's what I do, right? Like I balance, I balance things. That's, I don't want people to heal to find happiness. I think it's bullshit. I want people to find peace and I want people to find balance because those are achievable. I think you can be at peace with yourself and still lose things. I think you can be balanced with yourself and still be angry, still be upset, um, still be sad, but also still be happy. Right. Two things can be true at the same time is like, I lost, you know, two very important things to me in the past couple months. Like I lost a soldier, um, that I deployed with, and I also lost uh, a baby to miscarriage. And both of those were fucking hard, but I also balanced that out with knowing who I am and how important who, who I am really is, you know, not just for my family, but for me, right? Like I, I gave everything I could in, in both of those situations and it didn't work. 
I'm not meant to understand all of it. I wish I could. I really do. You know, I wish I could answer the question why, but I've tried to answer the question why with people, my dad, right, for years. And I never will get a perfect answer. And I think what, what really allows, what really has allowed me to build that understanding of self-judgment is knowing I can't answer the questions. I don't have the answers. I never will. I'm a human being. All I can do is know me and know what I provide, know what I offer, know what I'm, what I have, you know, potential for and own that, you know, and that's, that's kind of what, what allows me to balance things out is creating this ability to feel, but this ability to know and, and leveraging both at the same time is, is I got to feel what I got to feel. Losing those things was hard. I feel that, you know, I still feel it. And I also know, I know who the fuck I am and I know where I'm going. I've got to do that. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I like it. And the, the part running underneath it all is that until you basically, I don't know what else to call it, but come out, right? Like until you started doing the work. Yep. And this is, this is how I view myself. And I think it's why I resonate with you at this point is I was so just contracted yep. that I couldn't move. But then I started to unwind and I started to unfurl. And before I knew it, I was moving faster forward than, than life was. It's almost like I was trying to make up for lost time. And so it doesn't matter how many books you write. I don't think Dylan it's as soon as it's ready for a publication, you're going to sit down and read it and say, I could have done better. And the reason I believe is because you're constantly growing. It's this, this unfolding that's happening. At least that's what's happening for me. And, you know, the more you look, the more you see. Yep. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. So is there that moment of, of course. But here's what I've learned about people. And it doesn't matter who they are, no matter how heinous they are. They're always doing their best, even when they're at their worst, given what looks real to them in the moment. Not, there's not a single person on the face of the planet that has not done something. And whether it's 10 seconds or 10 years later said, what the fuck was I thinking? Well, you're believing your thought in the moment and you didn't have anything better to go by. You're always going to be able to look back and say, I had options A, B, C, D, double P, Q and Z. But you couldn't see them then. So beating yourself up about it now doesn't accomplish a whole hell of a lot. It's taking away from your ability to create something right now. Yeah. Sorry, I got a little long-winded there. No, it's good. It's good. I haven't even touched any of the questions that, that I have. Sorry. How do you feel? What, how far, how much longer do you want to go? My time is yours. Or versa visa. I mean, I don't, this may be, end up being like your longest episode ever. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to, let's, let's wrap it up in the next 15 minutes or so. Okay. I'm down. Um, let me, let me see if I have a question. Good question. Well, here's a good one. What do you think are the biggest obstacles that people face right now for mental health? People believe they're thinking and I'm a person too. So that's, it's, it's not like I'm saying you out there, 
stop believing your thinking because we, we all do it. But I don't know that there's a lot of people out there that, that know that they have an option. Like if there's, it, it goes back to what I said before. If, if there's a thought in my head, I know that I don't have to adopt it, take it home, raise it, educate it. I know that, but I don't know how many people know that. So believing, this is, this is getting a little, a little deep, but believing what looks real and assuming that's the only option. I think that might be one of the biggest things standing in the way of people's peace. Certainly. Yeah, it makes sense. So what, because I, I often see kind of two different perspectives in, in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I see people that trust like that they'll do something bad. And then I also see people that cannot trust themselves how do you address, you know, with, with kind of thinking about the obstacles and, and, you know, looking at it your way, how do you look at that and how do you address that? I guess by allowing people or creating a space for people to explore the possibility that the consequences aren't nearly as bad as they believe that they might be. We have a habit of living in the past and the future. And instead of the present moment, obviously, like living, living right now, it's hard because we're, we're culturally conditioned not to, but we're using the past to create the future and we're trying to avoid the mistakes that we made in the past. And so if it looks similar and we can remember something really bad that happened, it's not too difficult for us to envision a seriously, like just terrible consequence if we even risk this. But the truth is, There's no law that says the past will repeat itself unless we believe that it will. It's a hell of a lot more. I mean, if if you're looking for evidence, you're going to find it. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, it makes more sense to me to look for evidence of possibility than it does for certain negativity. That's really powerful. You know, when you, when you really come down to that, that concept, that's, I, I hope people really take from that when, when you, when you listen to this, because when you look for something, you will always find it, especially nowadays, like, like Google, like I've, I've Googled like three things in, in just this session. Like I'm going to fucking find it because Google will help me find it. And you can even like, even, you know, content has now become search engines, right? Social media have become search engines. Like you can find anything you want any argument, I will find you uh, both supporting and counter counter arguments to all of it. And they're, they're always going to exist. And you can sit there and place yourself on one side and there's always going to be an argument to you. So stop placing yourself and start finding the possibilities for the solutions rather than the problems. Because the problem is always going to exist. Your problems will always exist. You will always have problems. You're a human being. Like the the fucking heat is a problem. You know, like summer sucks sometimes and so does winter. Like we're in Wisconsin. Like this state sucks most of the time. You know, like eight eight to nine months of winter is, is pretty rough sometimes. So knowing that, I mean, that's so that's so profound that you say that is that 
look for the possibilities, look for the potential. I think that's probably why you and me get along so well is we both just see it, right? There's no other option for us. Like, I don't see your detriments. I don't see your weaknesses. I, I look at people and you look at people, Loison, and you just, here's all your strengths. And they're like, what? No way. And, and you're like, yeah, let me explain. And it's fucking easy for us. And you just share and you just show these people. And it's like, for the first time, you, they get to step outside of their own perspective and see the possibilities literally laid out in front of them. And that's, I, I can already know, I already know that's what you do. You know, like <laughs> you've, you've done it here in front of me. Um, and that's just something that is very rare for people to really focus on. And I, I love that you brought it up. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's a natural thing for me. I don't know if that's a gift. I don't know if that's a talent. I don't know if that's a skill, probably a combination of all three. I mean, if it's, it's kind of like you being constantly dissatisfied with the books that you're going to write for the rest of your life. I'm constantly growing. You're constantly growing. So I, I, I think maybe it's a combination of all three, but it's, it's scary to be here sometimes. Like it's, it's, it's not normal. I think it's natural, but not normal. That's an important distinction to make. But I don't think it's normal for you and I to talk about the things that we talk about out loud. If it were normal, more people would be doing it. And you're right. We wouldn't have a job. We would be doing something else. I don't know what we'd be doing. I can't envision doing anything other than what I'm doing now. But you're, you're right. We wouldn't have a job if we were normal. Right. Yeah, if what if all the stuff that I talked about was okay and normal to talk about, people wouldn't be called crazy. People wouldn't be called, you know, you know, ridiculous or unnatural or whatever. Like this is, this is stuff that throughout my military career was called, you know, being a pussy or, or being a bitch or, you know, that, that kind of thing or weak, you know, and it's when I look at it now, all of that is immature, right? Like I, Oh, it's, it's far more than that. It's a lie. Yeah. Vulnerability is the pinnacle of strength. I don't know how many people I've told that to. Absolutely. And some of them are vets and they look at me like, you know, vulnerability is some kind of STD that you could catch. No, <laughs> it's not. It's a place. It's, it's a powerful place. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah. But if you go there, you help other people go there. Yep. If you're willing to stand in your own humanness and be okay with it, that's powerful. Yeah. You know, and here's the difference between our, our niches, right? Veterans know they are warriors women don't know that they're warriors and the vulnerability is different on each side. That's something, you know, that's something I didn't really realize until now is that I talked to so many women that are like just hammers, absolute like bulldozers of, of incredible, po incredibly powerful, like, and strong, like it's crazy. And I look at them and I'm like, you're a fucking warrior. You know that? Mm -hmm. And they're like, no. And then I talked to veterans and like, 
You guys are fucking warriors. And like, yeah, that's what we fucking do. But you suck oh. at vulnerability. If you <laughs> so want to be, if you want to be a warrior, like you have to be able to be vulnerable because you have to know what you're defending. Yep. There's a difference between be, being a soldier and being a warrior. Yes. And and being a warrior is is intrinsically centered around understanding who you are. Because you have to go places and do things that nobody wants to do. You have to. You have to be able to go there. And if you can't, you you lose. You begin to lose people. You begin to lose friends. You begin to lose family. Right? If you can't overcome yourself, then yeah. what kind of warrior are you really being? Hell yeah. And if you can't be the warrior, if you can't step up, and fight when you need to fight, what kind of human are you really being? You can't live in this extreme of being fully vulnerable and you can't live in the, at this extreme of being fully violent. Like, I think there's a very important balance that you have to maintain within that. You have to be able to be violent and you have to be able to be vulnerable or else you'll be taken advantage of in whatever ways, whether it's by yourself or by others. Yeah. When I am working with veterans, one of the places that I do the best I can to take them, and I've been pretty successful so far, is you're more. If, I mean, somebody's like me, it's been in for, you know, a long time out now, but somebody that that's all they are. That's the only thing they are. That's the essence of who they are. And that's not even an original idea. Yeah. Our idea of what a veteran should be and the standards that we try to live up to as a result of that, those are generational ideas. Those have nothing to do with us. So if you're going to wear veteran like a skin, you're never going to reach your full potential. If you wear veteran like a shirt that you can unbutton to take off, brush off and put on a hanger and put it back on when you need it, you're going to thrive. Facts. But until, until, you see that you'll never be able to be as powerfully or as powerful as I can see you. Yeah. I can see you. You will never be able to see yourself this way because you're more than your service. You're more than your war. It's time to come home. Mm -hmm. And that applies to us too. As coaches and as veterans, I don't, if you're an accountant, right? Like a mother, a father, like it applies to everything. Yes. If you wear everything like it's a skin and you don't understand how to take it off, you're going to, you're going to tear yourself apart when you can't be that person anymore. Yep. You have to be flexible and you have to be able to step outside of your box. I mean, I, it's, that's a great, it's a great analogy. So let's, Let's wrap this up. And I, I like to wrap it up with, with a single, a single question. You answer it however you want to. And I probably should have prepared you for it, but you're on the spot now. If there was a message you could leave the world, what would it be? Come home. This applies to veterans. It applies to people that aren't veterans. We literally just talked about it. Come home. 
you are not going to find what you're looking for outside of yourself. Home isn't a place with a roof and four walls. Home is what you're going to spend the rest of your life looking for until you realize that you've carried it with you your whole life. Come home. Beautifully put. Very beautifully put. I love it. Well, Loison, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been an awesome episode. Um, yeah, it, it, we'll probably have to do this again soon for sure. Um, it was the privilege. Yeah, thank you. It really, it really was. Well, you can find Loison's um, website, his Facebook group down in the down in the description below. And I just want to I just want to thank all of you for joining me on this week's episode. It's been awesome. And uh, guys, we'll see you next time on the Dylan Experience.